Welcome to a very special bonus episode of Straight Talk with Wine Spectator, a podcast from the world's most widely read wine magazine. I'm your host, James Molesworth, and in episode 15 of Straight Talk, we're covering California Cabernet. You'll hear some highlights from my interview with Napa winemaker Maya Dalaval in that episode as well, but we had such a great conversation, we're posting the full interview here. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you're looking for more California Cabernet content, episode 15 also includes an exclusive interview between Wine Spectator editor and publisher Marvin R. Shankin and Camus Vineyard's owner Chuck Wagner. Plus, Dr. Vinny revisits the old adage that wine improves with age. But without any further ado, here's my full interview with Dalaval winemaker Maya Dalaval. Maya Dalaval, welcome to Straight Talk with Wine Spectator. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing good. Thanks for coming in. In the middle of harvest. <laughs> and we'll talk about that uh, when we get to it. But I wanted to go back to the early days of Maya Dalaval. You were appointed winemaker back in 2017 at your family estate, which to most people might be a fait accompli because your last name is on the label and your first name is on the other label. But you were actually not into wine in your early days. So talk to us a little bit about you know, growing up on the estate and then going off to college to do something else. Yeah. Um, growing up, I had zero desire to be part of the wine industry. Growing up in a small community, I, I loved, you know, where I grew up, but I thought there was something, you know, different out there for me that it couldn't possibly be being a winemaker, or joining the family business. I thought I really needed to forge my own pathway. Um, so I left and it really took me leaving the Napa Valley to realize how much I loved Napa and actually was so tied not only to the place, but to our vineyard and our winery. And so when I was in college and at University of Washington, I started exploring different pathways of the wine industry. I did an internship at Kermit Lynch, um, at their office in St. Helena to learn about the import business. Um, I did a marketing internship. I worked a little bit of hospitality. And then mm-hmm. finally, I worked my first harvest at Nyers Vineyards in St. Helena in 2009. And that was really what um, sealed my fate as to what I wanted to do, which was to become a winemaker. So, so you're doing international studies, if I, if I yes. remember. Yeah. yeah. And, and so you were kind of nibbling around the edges of the wine industry, but then when you actually saw production at some other facility, was that kind of the click? Yeah, it was. Yeah. It was. I worked uh, for Tadeo Borchardt at Nyers, and he was just really instrumental in showing me all the different vineyards and the walking me through in a, you know, a deep and detailed way, the winemaking process. And for me, it was really eye-opening. I loved, you know, both the technical aspects of uh, winemaking, but also the artistry and creativity and being very hands-on in what you do. It's it's a very unique line of work in that way. Was there pressure on you to, to join the family state at any point, or, or was this more just you needed to kind of spread your wings somewhere else and then come back to it? Um, no pressure at all. I think it was almost reverse psychology from my mother (laughs) because she told me, you know, this is your one life and you should do what you love. Um, and if it's not being in the wine industry, that's fine. You know, I'm really happy to continue running the business. And you know, when I retire, I'll, you know, just sell it. And I think that's like, at that point I started thinking, well, I'm only child and, I not that it's great to be attached to physical things, but I felt very attached to our vineyard and winery and what we my parents had started. So then it 
kind of planted the seed inside of me that mm-hmm. said, okay, well, actually, how do I carry this on? So it was very smart on my mom's behalf. <laughs> so Dallaval Vineyards was founded back in 1982. Your parents at the time uh, were looking for a a hotel or a resort mm-hmm. property. And your father kind of gave up on that quickly. He got bitten by the wine bug thanks to his own experience back in Italy, which right. was his heritage. Right. And so they bought four acres of Zinfandel vines. Did they grub them up or graft them over? Uh, they started making a little bit of Zinfandel at okay. first. Um, and they made that through 87 or 88 was the last vintage they made it. And then in the meantime, I'd started planting more vines and then grafted over eventually to, to Cabernet. Right. And by yeah. 86, the first commercial vintage, you're born yes. in 87. Yes. You're growing up on this estate as the operation is growing up. You're yes. approaching your teenage years in the mid nineties. Mm-hmm. What are your 2000s. Memory- yeah. okay. <laughs> I was like just doing the math on that. <laughs> okay. what, what do you remember of those days growing up? Um, Oh, I spent, I am a really avid equestrian and there was a barn down the road from us. So I remember, (laughs) I laugh at it now, but, you know, just being bitter about vineyards taking over places I used to ride. So I almost saw it as like a direct competition to something that I love to do, which is hilarious now because I, I still ride horses, but I am also a big lover of our vineyards and, and making wine. So it's a different um, relationship I have with the Valley now, but I mean, it's a lot of open space. It's a lot of free, you know, use your imagination a lot and you're outside. I, I was very much a tomboy. So mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time playing in the vineyards and, you know, learning how to do all the vineyard operations begrudgingly, I think, at the mm-hmm. time, which I appreciate now. But then, you know, I just wanted to be with the horses the whole time. And then your, your father passes when you're young. He passes in 95. Mm-hmm. And then the vineyard also runs into issues in the late 1990s. And your yeah. mother took the very difficult decision to replant the entire estate. She and, did. And she took over, the, obviously, the running of the estate after your father passed. And it wasn't really her ball of wax to begin with. It was his... Yeah, I think that, you know, she was, um, they just fell into the wine industry, I would say, by, you know, falling in love with that property and there happened to be vineyards there and then deciding that they were going to make wine. It was my dad's crazy idea and then my mom went along with it. But then she really developed a deep passion and love for growing grapes and making wine and and really um, felt embraced by the community and um, after my dad passed away, I think a lot of people thought or speculated that she would sell and go back to Japan. We actually have no extended family in the United States, with my father being from Italy and my mom being from Japan. So um, people just assumed that she would sell it and leave. But she really, you know, to her credit, took it to the next level and made those difficult decisions of replanting an entire vineyard you know we didn't make two vintages of maya because we didn't feel the quality was there um and we made like 400 cases of wine in the 2004 vintage so it was a lot of sacrifices and a lot of challenges to overcome but she you know really took the vision of what my parents what she started with my father and really took it to the next level and, you know, not without cutting any corners. And that is a 
huge reason why, you know, we have the reputation that we have today. Yeah. I mean, looking back, it's a, a pretty Herculean effort on her part. Did you feel that at the time or were you still riding horses and thinking about going somewhere else? No, I started to see it. I remember, I remember the day she, she told me that we had to replant the Maya block. I mean, she was in tears. It was mm. devastating to have that realization that we weren't going to be able to make this wine and, um, you know, how are we going to survive as a business is really scary. Um, you know, that's the, the challenges of being a family owned business. You don't have outside investments to mm -hmm. fall back on. This is our sole business. So I think that maybe was uh, one of the earlier, you know, moments for me where I started to think more seriously about, um, taking, becoming part of the family business in the, in the future. I know, uh, Getting to winemaker was not simply because your name is Maya Dalaval. Your <laughs> yeah. mother told you that you needed to earn it. Yeah. <laughs> Part of that process was when you finally were leaning towards the wine industry, you spent three years in Bordeaux. I did. Which is not a short period of time for someone to do some, some stagiaire. Right. Tell us about the, the impact that Bordeaux had on you. Uh, yeah, it was funny because initially I wanted just to come back to Napa. I had worked at Ornelia Maceto, and then I was um, working for Michelle Roland in Argentina, and I was ready to come back to Napa. Um, but a family friend of ours, he told me, and you know, he said very seriously, if you are serious about making great Cabernet Sauvignon and Bordeaux blends, you need to work in Bordeaux. And I kind of hemmed and hawed. I was like, I wasn't really sure if that's really what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. um, but he said, okay, just give me your CV and then um, I'll see, like, you know, if, if someone will take you for harvest. Okay, fine. And then he came back two weeks later. He said, okay, you know, Patrice is offering you an internship. Would you go then? I said, uh, yeah, absolutely. I'm not going to say no to that. Yeah. And then I just fell in love with Bordeaux and I was fascinated by the region and then ended up pursuing another master's degree um, there, which prolonged my time and allowed me opportunities to work both on the left and the right bank. Mm -hmm. And really just get it. I feel like that really solidified also my uh, understanding and training for viticulture and the vineyard side as well, which is very important for me today as a winemaker, I believe. Yeah, the exchange between Napa and Bordeaux has been been going on for years, mm -hmm. obviously, and sometimes uh, I don't think consumers realize just how intertwined they are. What was your initial hesitance, though, to going to Bordeaux? Did you think it was just old and stodgy or it was too <laughs> far away or... Um, so I grew up learning French, so I had a basis of French and I don't know, I never felt very welcome in France, mm. it was maybe because my level of French wasn't, I don't know, to the standard where I could be fluent or be conversational. And I think it was just intimidating, frankly, mm. to, to go back. And I felt like at that time it was more important to start establishing, um, myself in Napa. But I, you know, if I had a dollar for every time I ate my own words in my lifetime, I'd be <laughs> a millionaire. So <laughs> the, the CV while you're in Bordeaux is impressive. As you said, Petrus, but you're also at La Mondat and kind of like Gaffier, mm -hmm. uh, Chateau Latour. Yeah. I mean, how did that inform your winemaking, especially after being in Argentina and other spots first, right. and then they go sort of back in time in a way to, to right. what Bordeaux is. How did that shape your look on wine? Um, it actually felt like a very, you know, modern approach sometimes, um, 
despite it being, you know, considered old world. And there are a lot of traditions, um, both in viticulture and winemaking. But um, what was really eye opening for me was seeing the level of precision and technique at a larger scale, like at Chateau Latour. Um, because here in Napa, the perception is like, oh, you have to be small to be prestigious and make really high quality wine. And both my times at Ornelia and at Chateau Latour, it was so impressive to see something done at such high precision at such a much larger scale than what we're used to here in Napa. And just being able to see the organization and attention to detail and what you can achieve um, when you assemble the right team of people was incredibly, um, incredibly impressive. Also, I feel at Latour, that was my first um, foray and introduction into biodynamic farming, which was something that I took back to our vineyard in Napa. And I feel it was a very important moment for, for my education overall. As you were getting this practical experience, were you fueling the passion at the same time or was it all just so much information overload you were trying to sift through it? I mean, that's a lot to, to yeah. go through. I mean, I feel like I fully embrace it, the whole culture of it every day, um, both in education and in the passion. I feel like that just made it me more passionate about what I do or what I want aspired to become. And it was a lot of inspiration all around and being able also to visit other estates and, you know, intertwine yourself with other people in that industry and just learn and just absorb everything without having any major responsibility of your own is, is really, um, luxurious. I would say like looking back then and now what I do and would I be able to still absorb that level of information and enjoyment? I don't know. Cause there's always like 500 things looming in the back of your mind of mm. what you're supposed to be doing or what needs to get done. Wine Spectator Senior Editor and Special Projects Director James Molesworth, and you're listening to a bonus episode of Wine Spectator's Straight Talk Podcast, featuring my full interview with Maya Dalaval, winemaker of Dalaval Vineyards. For more California Cabernet coverage, including Marvin R. Shankin's interview with Chuck Wagner at Camus Vineyards, check out episode 15 of Straight Talk Now. Back now to Maya. You mentioned biodynamics, which you brought back. Dalaval was farming organically mm -hmm. all along, yeah. so that was a sort of a natural progression there. Right. But you, you brought some other changes, too. You, you were playing around with amphorae mm -hmm. in, in the winery. You've, you've done indigenous yeast ferments instead of the right. designer-propagated yeasts. Right. What's worked and what hasn't at, at Dalaval for Right. Yeah. Um, so I've been fortunate where everything I've tried so far has worked. So, okay. I, But I've always approached everything with a high level of precaution and scrutiny. So... Um, I try to make the most informed decisions that I can, knowing that, you know, we don't have hundreds and hundreds of tons of grapes to play around with. So, you know, with the Amphora, we brought in with the 18 vintage, we bought two 320 liter with Amphora, which is equivalent to a barrel and a half, um, to trial one Cabernet Sauvignon, one Cabernet Franc of maybe not the highest you know, level of lots that we would utilize for the Cab or Maya, but already in that first year saw the quality that it could bring. So, okay, each year kind of sneak in a higher and higher lot into it to where now, you know, in the most recent 
release the 2020, we had three amphora in the blend. So that, you know, I always try to, of course, too, like when you have your mother as your boss, right. <laughs> you feel you feel extra pressure to, to perform and not, not let, you know, not only your boss, but your family down. Um, and with the biodynamics, um, with the farm biodynamic farming, it, we were already organic. So we made the push to sort of do the certification to become organic. We had been farming organically since 2007. So it was just a matter of paperwork Mm -hmm. and we did the certification in 21 and with the biodynamics, it's really in this climate, it's really, I don't want to say easy, but it's not a huge adaptation for farming in terms of what, what we're doing in the vineyard. So that was a natural, natural and easy transition um, to, to push towards. I think the incremental change is what's really the smart detail. And you probably right. learned that in, in Bordeaux, right? but you know, sometimes the story gets out ahead of you. You're the new generation and mm-hmm. all of a sudden you're doing something different and everyone thinks you've got all amphora there and no right. more barrels, but yeah. really it's like one or two yeah. to see how it goes along. Right. Um, Joe Cafaro, Heidi Barrett, Tony mm-hmm. Soder, Mia Klein, yeah. And you've got Andy Erickson on as a consultant since 2007. That's a right. pretty good roster of winemakers at oh, Del yeah. Valle. Are you, are you comfortable in that in that list? I am uh, comfortably uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I feel incredibly honored to follow that all-star lineup. I um, actually would, you know, I'm trying to go back in time and reconnect with those old winemakers from years past and try to learn from their time at Dalavale and see, you know, what it is that, you know, their experiences and any notes that they have, because the notes that we have are, are relatively limited. I feel incredibly lucky to still be able to work um, with Andy. He's been such an incredible uh, mentor through, he's seen me, you know, all the way from the beginning where I didn't really even want to be in wine mm-hmm. to now, you know, getting to work with him from a consulting standpoint. Um, it's just really nice to, you know, I'm still young as a winemaker. I don't have the wealth of experience and knowledge and I haven't seen as much as he's seen um, in my career. So I really enjoy being able to, fall back to him when I have a doubt about something and have reassurance or advice on what he would do differently. So it's, it's really luxurious. Speaking of uh, being a young winemaker, I want to get your views on, on how Napa Valley is these days. There's consolidation, there's big players buying little players. Right. Um, there's families who aren't making the transition, whether it's at Rombauer or Phelps. Um, there's also plenty of player hating from folks who say Napa Cabernet is all just too expensive and mm-hmm. millennials aren't drinking wine. And right. you're a millennial. <laughs> I am. And you're making triple digit Napa Cabernet, right. t- triple digit price Napa Cabernet. How right. do you, I mean, do you hear the complaints and then how do you deal with that? You're, you're, you're both part of the change and emblematic of the change at the same time. Yes. Um, I feel definitely, uh, certainly a lot of pressure. Mm. Um, there is a lot of talk all the time and speculation and there is a lot of changes. Um, but I just have to focus on, you know, what we do and what I see. And we are seeing more and more, you know, millennials with, a good amount of disposable income who are coming to us and signing up um, for a wait list and engaging. And I think you just have to go with what 
you know, I can only go based off of what I see. But yeah, I think obviously there's a lot of consolidation. There's bigger players coming in. A majority of wineries in Napa Valley are still family owned. And I think Mm -hmm. that's important to emphasize. It is really difficult and expensive to run a business in California and even more so run a winery and own vineyards in Napa, Um, you know, to pay good wages, you have to provide a lot of, you know, benefits and it's competitive and uh, you want to do to do the right thing. It costs a lot of money. So um, I think it's, you know, justified. You have kind of have to, if you're a small producer, charge triple digits for your wines. Otherwise it's not really, it's difficult to make a viable business. Um, and I think it's healthy, you know, just to have, outside players and international players come to Napa and, you know, it shows the value and wealth and the, you know, attraction of Napa that it is an important region of the world. If no one was wanting to come in and buy and have a piece of the Napa Valley, then I would be probably a little bit concerned. So, I mean, of course, everything in balance, right? You don't want it to all become conglomerates and lose that sense of community, but I think it is important to understand that there are still a lot of great family wineries in, in the Valley. You mentioned uh, your time in Ornelion. You have a lengthy connection there, which continues mm-hmm. to this day. You very stealthily announced a joint venture with, <laughs> right. with Ornelia um, about a yeah. year or so ago. You debuted yeah. with the 2018 Vintage. How did that come about? It's called DVO for right. Adela Ornelion. Ornelion. Mm-hmm. How, how did that project come about? Um, so it's a long time, yeah, a long time relationship that we've had with the team of Ornelia. Um, as you know, at one point it was partially owned by the Mandavi family. So there was a Napa connection and even farther back having Andre Chelichev as their first, um, winemaking consultant when they started in 85. So they started around the same time as us as well. And, as I mentioned earlier, I had the opportunity to work for Axel Heinz at Ornelia in 2013. And with Giovanni Geddes, who's the CEO, and my mom, we always had a really nice, friendly relationship um, with each other. So this idea of creating a wine together in Napa came about very organically, I would say, in that way. Um, personally, I would have loved to make wine Make, to make wine in Tuscany and, you know, well, you never know what can happen, but, uh, it was a great opportunity for me to also explore outside of the sandbox of our vineyard. You know, we are all estate grown and produced and we're in one very small tranche of the Napa Valley. So it was a really exciting opportunity to explore other AVAs and, uh, work with other vineyards and, worked collaboratively. I think it it was a, it's a wonderful experience to be able to collaborate with someone overseas and keep the the connection to Italy um, and make a Napa Valley wine outside of our estate. So that's how it came about. I I find, I always 
am a little skeptical of joint ventures only because they right. invariably involve compromise between two sides. And so sometimes you get <laughs> yeah. winery A from their region goes into winery B's region and they make a wine that kind of tastes like wineries A, you know, winery A's wine from yeah. right. But you're not doing that. As you said, no estate fruit from Dallabao mm-hmm. goes into DBO. In fact, you're shopping around in, in cool climate areas. Mm-hmm. Right? Exactly. And, and what's, so what's the impetus there? What, what's the DV part of it? And what's the O part of the, the DBO? All right. So I think we like to talk about it and describe it as, you know, you have this old world sensibility and elegance to the wine, but you have new world freedom. Mm. So the new world freedom comes the ability to work with any varietal or any site that you choose to and make a Napa Valley wine. Um, We chose Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc for the initial vintages because those are both grapes we are very fond of and comfortable working with and are you know, play to our strengths and, um, picking cooler climate sites to, you know, expressively make a Napa Valley wine, but not try to force something into it. That would be, you know, that the old world component comes more naturally. You can make a naturally a more restrained wine from a cooler vineyard versus picking from a warmer, riper site and forcing it to be a, a cool style of wine. Well, you're a couple of vintages in on that project, and uh, I've yeah. uh, liked all of them uh, considerably, so Thank good you. luck going forward with that. Let's talk about Dallaval, though. Over the years, as I've gotten to know you, I would consider you a, a soft-spoken but very serious person. <laughs> um, but I, I also see the fire in your eye, bad pun here, for the 2020 vintage, which was the wildfire all right. mark Is vintage. Is that a pun intended? <laughs> yeah. Um, you're very impassionate about the fact that you made a wine. There are two sides to 2020. There are the mm-hmm. people who, who didn't make a wine. That's a large pool of people. Right. And then there are the ones that, that forged ahead and, and decided to get something into bottle. Tell us about that process and why you felt so strongly about it. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, 2020 yeah. was not a vintage I would ever like to repeat for multiple reasons. Um, you know, let's not forget about COVID. That. Mm-hmm was the first, um, you know, slap in the face and getting, you know, we, we have our own crew and we farm everything ourselves in house. Um, so together with our vineyard manager, Edgar and I, you know, spent the season really keeping our team safe distance, trying, you know, trying to learn about COVID and as we went without like the rest of the world and, you know, to everyone's credit, they all showed up every single day and, you know, never questioned, you know, is this safe? Should we be doing this? And, you know, I owe everything to them for that faith in us and trusting us to make the right decisions for our team. Um, and then of course, you know, come the fall, then mid August, the LNU complex fire started and we had not picked anything at that point. Um, it was very early on, the vintage was shaping out to be really beautiful. It was, you know, akin to what I would say would be like a 2013, you know, low yields, drought year, very concentrated, nice tannin uh, in the fruit that was showing at that time. But of course, then you say, okay, now, now what? So we started testing, testing berries, testing, you know, micro fermentation, sending out to labs, local labs until the local labs were backed up. And then we Took, went to the international labs and we were very thorough. We tested previous vintages because the truth of the matter is that at that time and still to this day, there's still a lot that's 
not well understood about smoke tainted. It's incredibly nuanced. I'm not a researcher. I'm not in academia. So I can only go off of what information is available to me and with my colleagues. And, you know, I talked to a lot of other winemakers in Napa Valley and, you know, what are your thoughts? What should we, you know, how are you proceeding forward? And that's what's great about the Napa Valley and this community is that you can connect with a lot of like-minded people and people are very open about sharing information of what they have, so sharing numbers and all that. So we were incredibly thorough and we felt, you know, comfortable to be cautiously optimistic and move forward with making wine. And then if something for whatever reason changed, we would forego the vintage, but we would learn something from it. So we proceeded forward. You know, we were wrapped up picking by the time the second fire, glass fire came rolling around. And we were just very cautious and we made the wine in a, like as we would in a normal vintage. And the only thing I did differently was I did malolactic fermentation in tank to be extra precautious and not have any oak impact to retest after in the finished wine, Mm -hmm. because there's a lot of compounds in oak barrels because you toast the inside of the oak that are this exact same as what use used to detect at that time what the volatile phenols were for smoke taint Mm -hmm. and then kept testing and kept tasting and testing and tasting. And so then, you know, come time to blending, we work with Michelle Roland. So, you know, it's another outside, there's palate, an expert palate who tastes a lot of wines and I fully trust him as well. And he, you know, said the wine, you, you have to really make, in, even more so in this year, the very, very best wine that you have the ability to from your vineyard because it's, it is going to be heavily scrutinized. So we were very rigorous in the selection process for blends. We bottled, we continued, we tested again, we tasted it again and tested and tasted and now it's release time. And yeah, it feels, you know, they've been fully reviewed now and we feel confident in these wines and it's a labor of love and I felt like, and my mom would agree with me because I'm never going to make a decision alone, but with my mom and our team, we felt this was the best expression of 2020 from our vineyard. So, you know, to not put it out because we are afraid mm-hmm. is, I don't know if that's a justifiable reason to, to do away with a wine that's we think well, we're very proud of. Right. And there have been times in the past where Delabelle did not release Absolutely. the wine. So the, the, that option was on the table. Right. Because what, what sense would it make for us to put out a wine that we've had doubts about? If we had any single doubt about this vintage, we would just pull it. Yeah. It would be it, because it's what's, there's nothing worth in worth it for us to, put out a wine without, okay, my first name and my last name <laughs> right. on it, and then have it be, you know, just a flawed wine. Just, this just not something that we do. We built decades of building our integrity and our reputation. It just wouldn't make any sense to throw it away for a single vintage. Well, the wines are successful. They're in the Cabernet Report that's out now. You know, they are among the handful of successful 2020s, in part because not only was it such a difficult year with the wildfires, and so many people didn't make wine, but it was mm-hmm. it was not the easiest growing season. No, I mean, it was so. Um, I, again, I applaud you for for sticking with your 
your beliefs there and, and putting out two very high quality wines. Thank you. Let's jump ahead though to a much different vintage, 2023. <laughs> yeah, I bumped different. into you in the vineyard uh, the other morning. <laughs> right. uh, you were picking in some, bringing in <laughs> that some fruit. That was a nice surprise. Yep. <laughs> and uh, then we got this nice rain over the weekend, which yeah. means uh, probably no wildfire risk this year. No. Right. And now we're looking at a very different year in 2023, aren't we? Oh, yes. Very much so. Tell us a little bit about it. It's been cool. It's been a stretched out season. It's, uh, what are we looking at? Yes. Uh, 2023 has been wonderful in comparison. Um, <laughs> you know, we had our aquifers replenished over the winter. We had a great amount of rain. Uh, the spring was, yeah, the, some, some challenging conditions in the spring, um, depending on where you were. Um, that caused a little bit of shatter, particularly in Cab Franc. So a little, you're seeing, you know, in our vineyards, smaller clusters, slightly lighter weights. Um, summer was great. I mean, at one point, everyone was worried it was going to be akin to a 2011. But then, you know, July and August rolled around and we had a nice, warm, consistent weather, which was great. And just some nice, you know, light touches into the low hundreds and but nothing excessive. And uh, yeah, September has been was great. Is it's, it's come and gone. Yep. <laughs> it's October now. Um, and yeah, we started picking last week and yields are actually similar to last year for us. And what I've seen in other picks as well, um, the quality is great. Um, we're just getting the first few ferments going and super aromatic, nice color. I think it is going to be a very classic vintage indeed because also acids have been holding really well and we see the sugars haven't been soaring through the roof. Yeah, this um, is not the the hot dry vintage. No, this is this is an interesting slow vintage. Slow and steady. Yeah. Um and yeah, the rain was I mean it was a surprise. I didn't expect it to rain. I was at the winery on Saturday and I saw this big dark cloud and I was like, "Hmm." Mm -hmm. That wasn't really in the forecast. And yep. then it was pouring. And I said, oh, that also wasn't in the forecast. But, you know, now it's dry and warm again. And this week's going to heat up. It's perfect. I mean, there's really not much to complain about. So no excuses in 2023. No excuses <laughs> in 2023. <laughs> all right. Maya Dalaval from a young girl riding horses, wondering why all these vineyards were in her way to making wine at Dalaval Vineyards. We thank you for coming in and talking with us on Straight Talk today. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this special bonus episode of Street Talk with Wine Spectator, a podcast from the world's most widely read wine magazine. Don't forget to check out episode 15 for much more California Cabernet coverage, including Marvin Shankin's interview with Camus owner Chuck Wagner. If you like the show, give us a rating on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. And if you know a California Cabernet fan or anyone who's into wine, tell them about the new episode. Until next time, I'm James Molesworth, reminding you to always share when you drink the good stuff.